0: This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com slash B-E. That's IXL.com slash B-E. Welcome to Transformative Principle. I'm your host, Jethro Jones, and you can follow me on Twitter at Jethro Jones. This episode is brought to you by John Cat Educational, a professional development publisher serving as the global leader in combining both research and practice in all materials. Find timely PD publications to support yourself and your faculty by visiting them online at us.johncatbookshop.com. Great instruction gets students engaged. TeachFX equips teachers with the instructional strategies and job embedded feedback they need to get students engaged in virtual. Or in-person classes. Learn more about TeachFX and get a special offer at teachfx.com/transformativeprinciple. Welcome to Transformative Principle. I am excited to have Mike Anderson on the program. He's been an educator for more than 25 years, a public school teacher for 15 years. He's also taught preschool, coached swim teams, and taught university graduate level classes. He now works as a consultant, providing professional learning for teachers throughout the United States and beyond. In 2004, Mike was awarded a National Milken Educator Award. In 2005, he was a finalist for the New Hampshire Teacher of the Year. In 2020, He was awarded the Outstanding Educational Leader Award by NHASCD for his work as a consultant. A best-selling author, Mike has written eight books about great teaching and learning, and when not working, Mike can be found hanging with his family, tending his personal gardens, and searching for new running routes around his home in Durham, New Hampshire. Well, Mike, welcome to
1: Transformative Principle. Thank you, Jethro. It is great to come back on and join you again. It's been a couple of years.
0: Yes, it has. You were actually part of the Leadership Summit that we did a few years ago. And so if you haven't heard that and you're listening to this, there's a wealth of information there. That's at transformativeleadershipsummit.com. And that was also really great. And Mike has been someone that I have looked up to for a long time. He's just been very practical. The thing that I first Uh, learned about Mike was the book, uh, Learning to Choose, Choosing to Learn. So I remember reading that and thinking, man, this guy just gets it. And so then I started stalking him online and finally connected. And I feel like I've got a friend here. So uh, it's great when we can connect with the people that we've been learning from. So thank you for doing that. Thank you so much for that lovely introduction. Yeah. Today we want to talk about your new book, uh, which is about motivation. And this is an area that I have thought a lot about myself and I'm actually right now in the middle of the pandemic I have started a uh, a micro school to help provide support for families that are that are struggling during this time that's not what we're talking about but the issue of motivation is a big issue and right at first the only people who were enrolled in the school were my own kids <laughs> and so <laughs> that's a really um, micro school yes very micro my wife and i would talk about things a lot and she would feel like things weren't going that well and um and was frustrated about motivation and and what we try to teach our kids is we want them to do the right things because they're the right things not because they're going to get some sort of reward. We want them to do good things because it feels good to do things and not necessarily because, you know, somebody's going to see you and give you praise or whatever the case may be. This idea of motivation is is really important to me and I'm looking at it in a different light now because of what is going on in the world and what we're experiencing. I'm excited to talk to you about this topic and let's start with extrinsic motivation which is what we do in schools. And can you uh, define that briefly and talk about when that is good and when that is not so good to have extrinsic motivation?
1: Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And you said it's what we do in schools and it doesn't have to be what we do in schools. That's actually what this new book is all about. It's helping us move away from it, but it does tend to be kind of the, de- the default type of motivation. So extrinsic motivation is motivation that comes from without. So we motivate other people through extrinsic motivators. So you were just saying you want your kids to do the right things for the right reasons because it feels good to help other people. You pick up a piece of trash on the side of the road, not because you think someone's going to give you a sticker or some praise for it, but because it feels good to make the world a little bit cleaner. That's an example of intrinsic motivation. So extrinsic motivators are ones that we, um, that we impose on others. And often in schools, we think of these in terms of sticker charts or clip charts or marbles in a jar. You mentioned praise, and certain kinds of praise can absolutely feel like extrinsic motivation. Grades are often used as extrinsic motivation. And we should also recognize that punishments are are also forms of extrinsic motivation. So when we threaten a kid, if we say, you don't do such and such, you know, if you don't do this, then you're not going to have recess. Or if you don't do this, then you're going to get a bad grade. That's also a form of extrinsic motivation.
0: Well, and I appreciate how you are are putting the emphasis on uh, that. It's what we impose on others. I, th- I think about my, my own extrinsic motivation to do something for so many days and then I can buy myself a treat or whatever, something simple <laughs> like that. But that's not really extrinsic because I'm not imposing that on others. But when my wife says that she will buy me a treat if I take the trash out every day, um, that is more of an extrinsic motivator because she's trying
1: to put that on me. Is that a fair way to understand that? Absolutely. In fact, there's some really interesting research about this. I've been digging into the work of Edward Deci and Richard Ryan, who've done some really incredible work in the area of intrinsic motivation. And they talk about the importance of autonomy. So in a bit, I'm sure we'll talk more about intrinsic motivation, but autonomy is one of the key intrinsic motivators. And it appears as though... Um, autonomy might be the most important of them in terms of of motivation. So your example is a great one. If somebody else says, if you take out the trash, then you'll get a treat. That's a form of extrinsic motivation. Using that same system on yourself, I still think it could be problematic because it allows you to get into this self-negotiation of, well, how much do I really care about getting the treat? I don't really want to take out the trash, so there could still be problems with it. But at least you're in control. And so if you're in control of that system, then it's not being imposed by others. So maybe it's still not ideal, but it, it wouldn't be viewed, I think, as a form of extrinsic motivation. So I'll give you an example of this, a really similar one in our own family. When our kids were little, we wanted both of our kids to have an allowance because we wanted them to learn how to manage money. And we wanted them to have a little bit of spending money. And they also had chores to do around the house. But we kept those two things separate. So. They got their allowance, regardless of how much of a hassle they gave us about taking out the trash or feeding the dog or whatever the chores were. We didn't use the allowance as the bribe to get them to do the chores. Because here's the challenge with that. If we say to a kid, if you don't take out the trash, you're going to lose your allowance, then the kid can say, well, I don't really care about the allowance. And so in a sense, we've taught them to think transactionally. And so sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't but what we've also trained the kid to do is to say, "Oh, okay." So <laughs> it's about negotiation. And we wanted our kids to both have an allowance because we want them to experience how to work with money and we want them to know they have responsibilities to do around the house and the reason that you do them is because you're responsible to the family. That's that's the motivation is that we're all part of the same team and we're all working together. It's harder to be really clear. It's a much easier to bribe kids and say, if you take out the trash, then I'll give you an ice cream sandwich. It, it's harder to to do what you're talking about, which is to say, our family values say we're all in this family, and so we all have responsibility, but in the long run, it's going to help us to get our kids where we want them to be, as opposed to the bribing about the ice cream sandwich, which might give a short-term win, but might end up backfiring in the long run.
0: Yeah. And I think that this idea of thinking about things in a long-term way instead of a short-term way is is really important. Um, we do something similar with our kids, except that they have certain jobs that they have to do that they get paid for and other things they do because they're just part of the family. We've kind of taken that uh, into um, a multi-pronged approach, maybe you could say, where certain things are are worth doing the work to get paid for it, and other things you just do. Like making your bed every day, that's just what we do because that's the kind of people we are. And we think it's important to make our beds. But taking out the trash, that's a chore that one person does for a week, and then it rotates through. And and then we do pay them for that piece, but but not for everything. Keeping your room clean, that's part of just being in the family. So you're never going to get paid for being clean because we want our kids to be clean. So anyway, I I think that's good. Is there ever a time, Mike, when extrinsic motivation or extrinsic imposing on others is a
1: good thing and that we should do it? Boy, I've done so much research about this. And if you're interested, all you listeners out there, to a really fantastic book about this topic, check out Drive by Dan Pink. He also has a great TED Talk. And there's also a really cool animated video Where one of his talks is set to a dry race animator. And he talks about this in that talk, and it's fantastic. Extrinsic motivators are good for short term gains. They they give us wins in the short term. And they sometimes improve performance when the task is rote or mechanical. So as long as the task is really simple and straightforward. So if you think about that book, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, it's one of my all time favorite kid books. Charlie Bucket's dad worked in a toothpaste factory and his job was to screw the toothpaste caps onto the toothpaste tubes. If you want to boost his productivity, you should offer him a bonus for however many toothpaste caps he screws onto the toothpaste tubes in an hour. And the faster he does it, the more he gets paid. In that kind of instance, extrinsic motivators can be pretty good. And again, they can work in the short term. The problem is, is that they often have negative impacts in the long term. If we say to a kid, okay, if you work really hard during this math period, then you can get some extra free time later. That will sometimes get the kid to work a little bit harder in the moment. But then the next week, they might say, well, am I going to get extra time if I work hard? And so that's where we end up with a long term negative impact. And the extrinsic motivator's shortcoming is when the task is not rote or mechanical, when it involves creativity or deep thinking, focusing on the carrot focusing on the treat or the prize that you're trying to get or trying to avoid the punishment, depending on what's being offered, it tends to sharpen your focus. And so you lose creativity or you lose the ability to think divergently, which is often what, I mean, if we're thinking about schoolwork, good schoolwork is not simple and rote. There's some of that there, but but if we're working on a a research project or if we're thinking about how to create a book project to share a book that we've just read and we're gonna share it with other people, that requires more complex thinking and extrinsic rewards and motivators tend to sharpen our focus on getting the prize, which reduces creativity. So I'd say if the question you asked was, I know I'm kind of rambling here. The question you asked was, are there times extrinsic rewards should be used? It's when we only care about the short-term, not the long-term. And when the task is straightforward and kind of boring and mechanical, those are the times that they can work well.
0: Yeah. And I want to highlight what you said, that good schoolwork is not rote or mechanical, um, but there is a lot of rote or mechanical schoolwork out there. So you're differentiating between the good schoolwork that gets kids to think on their own and be creative and all that kind of stuff. And a lot of schoolwork that is not good schoolwork that is rote or mechanical. And for me personally, I learned very quickly that school was a game and there were certain rules to the game, like just get this work done and then you can do whatever just about whatever you want. And so I did that. And so many times when I got in trouble in school, it was because I was done with my work. And so I started goofing off because I was bored. And unfortunately for me, my teachers didn't totally understand that's what was going on. And they didn't like that I was goofing off, but I was, you know, a rambunctious energetic kid. And so that's, that's what I did. And it wasn't until I had a few teachers who really said, look, it's not about getting the work done. It's about learning and it's about what you're doing. And they created different assignments so that it wasn't just filling out a worksheet because I could get through that worksheet really fast. Mm -hmm. Um, but it was about learning something. And, and now As an adult, I I appreciate that so much more because now I know how to learn and I know how to teach myself new things and where to go to learn different things, but nobody's telling me what to do now. And as a kid, I longed for that because I feel like that's how I do well personally. Let's shift over to intrinsic motivation and give a definition of that um, in your current thinking, because even the extrinsic motivation definition was Uh, a little different than what I've thought of it. So I appreciate that. So what is intrinsic motivation and why is it so much more important? All
1: right. So if extrinsic motivation is motivation that comes from without, then intrinsic motivation comes from within. And I think it's a little bit different from self-motivation. I think intrinsic motivators can help us be more self-motivated, but intrinsic motivators are ones that we're actually all born with. And there are, I am arguing in this book, six key intrinsic motivators that all people can be inspired by and that help us be motivated. All right. So you ready for these six? Let's do Um, it. All right. So the first, and these aren't necessarily in order of importance, just so you know, I don't have these as a hierarchy or as a, this is most important, this is least important. Um, So one is autonomy. It's about our need for power and control. When we feel like we've got some control over what we're doing or how we're doing it, we can find more energy and passion for our work. Second one is a sense of purpose. When we know that what we're doing has meaning, when it's something we care about or when it's serving a purpose that we think is really relevant or important, that can give some real energy to our work. The third one is competence. So this is our need to feel good at stuff. We're more motivated when we know that we're doing well or when we see ourselves growing or learning. So we're really motivated when we see a challenge in front of us that we think we can do. We're really demotivated when we feel like we already know it, and so it's too easy and it's boring, or when the challenge looks so hard that we don't think we can be successful. So that's what competence is all about. It's feeding the need for a sense of mastery and success. The fourth one is belonging. We can be really motivated for work when we're connected to other people and when we're doing something in community. And that doesn't mean we always have to be doing a group project. So for example, in a writer's workshop, each kid might be writing their own poetry, but we can put that together into an anthology so that as a whole group, we're creating a book of poems. So each kid's working on their own poetry, but together we're doing something to get, you know, in community that can be really motivational and inspirational. The fifth is curiosity. So this has to do with the things that we're just intrinsically naturally interested in. I can't explain why I've always been fascinated with reptiles and amphibians or why I've always been fascinated with the weather. These are topics that I've just always been interested in. And I am willing to sit through a boring documentary on TV about snakes or lizards or hurricanes because the content itself is so fascinating. And then the sixth one is a sense of fun. So when we are feeling playful and energetic, when there's a sense of joy in the work, then we can be really motivated. So I'm making the case in this book I'm working on that the key to moving away from extrinsic motivation and instead tapping into intrinsic motivation is that at least some of those six intrinsic motivators need to be in place in order for the work to be naturally compelling. And that's when we can move away from those extrinsic systems, because as you said, if the work is boring and rote, and if that's what we're doing a lot of, if those intrinsic motivators aren't there, then that's when we need to say, okay, kids, if you work really hard, then we'll give you an ice cream party on Friday, because there's not autonomy or purpose or competence or those others. But when those things are cooked into the work, that's when kids can be fired up about learning.
0: Yeah, this this is really great. And as you were reading over that list of six indicators, I was thinking about the times where I have been motivated Intrinsically, because of that, because of one of those things being ticked off, and mm-hmm. um, and so just this weekend, I was preparing a presentation for um, an ASCD symposium uh, with someone, and I had to learn how to use Final Cut Pro to edit the video in a different way. And it was it, it was something that I intentionally chose to help myself learn because I wanted because I was curious, and I'm that that was the check mark that that was ticked off on. Um, but then I was doing it with another person. So I was having that sense of belonging and that mm-hmm. was good. And then um, the uh, the competence piece came in when it didn't work how I wanted. And I like the switch flipped off in my mind and like in my body, I could feel it. And I said, I'm done. I don't want to do this anymore because what I thought <laughs> was working stopped working and I felt like I can't figure this out because I don't have the language. And I literally, Mike, just this weekend went through this, this process to where I was like, I am so done with this. I don't want anything to do with it. And, and I said, okay, I've got to just push myself a little bit more because it's not done. And if it's not done, that's all on me. I personally can't handle failing on this because this is the last very last step is me finally editing this. And so I, I, I had to diagnose the problem and once I felt like I could do it again, like I could get there and figure out how to fix it, even though I knew I was doing it wrong, Mike, I still was very motivated to finish it because of those other things. But when that switch happened, when I felt like it was impossible to to accomplish it, I like, I just gave up hope and I was like, well, this is not going to work anymore and I don't even want to do this anymore. And and it was really fascinating as you were talking through that that I felt those exact feelings this weekend, um, and it was madly frustrating, but so satisfying when I did figure out how to make it work, even though I knew I was doing it the wrong way. Like it was taking twice as long, but that's
1: okay because I, I was still able to do it. So that's such a great example and a great example of how complex motivation is and intrinsic motivation is. So you talked about having autonomy and purpose and you talked about the struggle with competence and you talked about belonging. And these things are all interacting with each other. And as you said, you were really motivated at times, but then one of them becomes in deficit. All of a sudden, your sense of competence is feeling threatened. And you're probably kind of feeling stupid when it's not working the way you think it should. And that can can kill your motivation in the moment, even when the other three things are there. And so, that I think is a great illustration of just how complex this is, but also how powerful it is. So, here's an example of how an extrinsic motivator could have messed this all up. Now, I don't know if you're getting paid for this ASCD symposium or not.
0: No, I wish that'd be nice, right?
1: (laughs) Well, so I'll tell you, yeah, we could talk about that. Okay, so let's say ASCD says to you, if you do a good job with this, we'll give you a $500 honorarium or whatever. You know, they say we'll give you some money if you do well. Think about how that would change your motivation. Now, as you're working on this, in addition to autonomy, purpose, competence, and belonging all being mixed in, now you've got this other thing where there's this pressure to do well by somebody else's standard. So now you're constantly weighing, is this going to be good enough for them? Now it might change the work so that you're now you know, trying to, to please somebody else, which may or may not improve the product. Or it might dishearten you because as you're spending hours and hours and hours on this, you're thinking, man, like if I'm getting paid by the hour, I'm taking a shellacking here. I'm putting in 10 and 15 hours and all of a sudden I feel like my rate is going down. (laughs) So that's an example of how an incentive could actually demotivate.
0: John Cat Educational supports high-quality teaching and learning by providing publications that are research-based, practical, and focused on the key topics proven essential in today's and tomorrow's schools. The latest John JohnCat publications include a book whose bold, transformative ideas amaze and infuriate people around the world, according to one reviewer, a title from Global Leaders in Curriculum Planning, Practice, and Retrieval, one book that says Stop Talking and Start Doing with regard to teacher well-being, and much more. These books used by educators of all roles across North America and worldwide amplify fresh, engaging voices with practical strategies to create transformative change. Learn more in our show notes at jethrojones.com podcast. During COVID, every teacher is a new teacher. That's why innovative school leaders are turning to TeachFX, whose professional learning platform doubles student engagement online or in person. To learn more about TeachFX and get a special offer, visit teachfx.com slash I created a new podcast with my friend Frederick Lane called Cybertraps. We are exploring the myriad risks and adverse consequences that can arise from the use and misuse of digital devices and electronic communication tools. Please subscribe to the Cybertraps podcast, and if you like it, please give us a rating. Here's an excerpt from an interview with Eric Stevens on the value of identity and being ethical in our work with underserved populations.
2: If I approach my research with the intention of helping a group of people, but I'm using the data that they themselves have created and have been replicated by their, their own personal identity, replicated over and over and over and over my research is already flawed ethically. Some people, that's not a big thing. For me, it was problematic because I didn't want to feel like I was exploiting people, but I still wanted to help. What I ended up creating was I wanted to understand the prison system at the language level across time, Um, and across space in the United States. Um, Basically, I wanted to understand if we send a person to prison, we're sending them to a correctional facility um, with correctional officers and we give them handbooks to say, hey, this is what you should be doing. What I wanted to answer was at the language level with the technical documents that we hand to um, an inmate, what are we correcting them to? To what standard... Are we asking them to be at the language level? Check out more from this interview at
0: Cybertraps.com slash seven.
1: So I'll give you another example of this. I'm doing some work with a group of teachers in a region. So somebody called me up and said, we'd really like you to do some work with some teachers, but we're worried about how maxed out teachers are. So we want this to be voluntary. Teachers are going to come on. It's going to be like a once every other week for an hour to discuss a topic and be part of a learning community. And so what they were doing was they, they wanted to set this up and then they wanted to try and incentivize people to sign up. And so what they said to me was, how about this? We say to people that if they sign up and if they attend all three sessions in this first chunk of time, that we'll give them one of your books and they can choose the book that they want. And my first reaction as an author was, great, they're gonna buy books. (laughs) (laughs) And then I thought, whoa, wait a minute. Let's think about what I know about motivation. We want people to sign up because they're interested in having really cool discussions with colleagues. That's the goal of this learning community that we're putting together. So adding an incentive in might change some people's motivation. I also worried that because we're saying it's voluntary, And we're saying to teachers, look, you've got so much on your plates. If you make the first session, but you can't make the second session, that's okay. No guilt allowed. But if we put the incentive out and say, if you attend all three, then you get a free book. Now it's kind of like we're sending mixed messages. We're saying it's okay if you can't make all of them, but we really want you to make all of them. And so that could add pressure. And now we might have some people saying, boy, you know what? I I just, I don't think I can commit the time and I worry I can't be to all three, so I'm not going to sign up. So I actually told the organizer of this event to not incentivize with the books. I said, if you want to offer people books to help with our learning, that would be wonderful. But but let's not incentivize and say, if you sign up, then you get the books, because I'm worried about what that's going to do to motiv- motivation. That was the decision we made. And... Um, and we had 75 people sign up which we were thrilled with. Yeah, wow, that's great. So,
0: when you when you think about that kind of a situation, it's it's kind of easy to break it down and and go through that process that you just went with those experiences. Um, but how do we do that in in schools, especially where, you know, grades and attendance rewards and all those kinds of things are already in place and there're already things that we do to try to incentivize kids to have good behavior, complete work, or whatever the case may be, how do we start making this shift in education specifically? Boy, it's huge.
1: And and it's an important question that we need to ask. So the first thing I think we need to do is acknowledge that the reason we're doing this is because we have the best of intentions meaning the reason that we're using like attendance rewards and motivating with grades and giving ice cream parties and saying, if you read over the summer, we'll give you pizza gift certificates. All of that is coming from a place of good intentions that we want kids to love to read and we want kids to come to school and we want kids to work hard. Then what we need to understand is the science behind that. And we need to recognize that when we say to kids, if you read over the summer, you'll get pizza. That in a sense, what we're saying is, you probably don't want to read over the summer and you probably shouldn't want to read over the summer. So that's, it's a really, it's in psychology, it's a phenomenon called signaling. So by saying, if you read over the summer, we'll give you pizza. We signal to kids that reading over the summer is something inherently distasteful because we have to bribe you to get you to do it. So when we say, if you come to school and you make every school day, then you'll get a perfect attendance award. Then we're actually sending the message that you shouldn't want to come to school every day. Otherwise, we wouldn't have to give you an award to to get you to come. So that's one thing we have to do is we have to understand the psychology behind the incentives and rewards that we're using. Because without that, we're never going to make the shift. We have to understand that these systems do more harm than good in the long run.
0: There's a distinction, though, because there are things that we can do to increase the intrinsic motivation with that same thing that you're talking about so um doing a a reading club over the summer like through the library a library program where there is celebration and community around and a sense of belonging to Mm -hmm. that it makes it so that then isn't about the reward but it's about the the community and being involved in it um, allowing kids to choose their own books also allows them to have that curiosity. So I, I appreciate what you're saying here because it's the distinctions are sometimes small, but what you're focusing on um, really does matter. And that signaling piece I think is really powerful too, that you, we signal that something's distasteful because we need to incentivize it. I'm glad you said that because I'm processing through that right now in my mind and, and, and had a couple questions about that, mm-hmm. but um, yeah, it's just fascinating.
1: I've got a great video for people to check out. If if listeners are interested in checking this out, here's what you Google. Alfie, A-L-F-I-E, on Oprah, like Oprah Winfrey. So Alfie Cohn, who is the author of Punished by Rewards, a phenomenal book that came out in the early 90s. He, he was a, on, a guest on Ope, the Oprah Winfrey show back in the mid 90s. And they replicate one of the studies that he talks about that where, you know, where we do the signaling. And so in the study, what you see are, uh, they get a bunch of middle school kids who come in for a study. The kids are all told that they are part of a study to evaluate toys that a toy company is selling. Half of them are told, if you do this work for us, we'll pay you. And the other half are told, here are these puzzles to check out. We need feedback about whether or not they're fun. And then after the kids have been playing with the puzzles, both groups for, um, I don't know, eight or 10 minutes, then somebody comes in and tells them to stop. And so they're told, okay, we've got the information we need. You just wait here and we'll be back in a couple of minutes. And then the researchers look to see what happens. The kids who were paid, I think it's nine out of 10 of them, after they were told that they were all done and that they, you know, researchers had all they needed, the kids didn't keep playing with the puzzles. They looked at magazines, they walked around. But every single kid who wasn't paid continued to play with the puzzles even after the researchers told them they were all done, because they said the puzzles were interesting or challenging. So it was this, it's this amazing, it's totally worth Googling and looking at. So it's Alfie Cone on Oprah Winfrey. And then you can see this act of signaling in action. So basically, the kids who were told you're doing this for money understand it as a job. It's something that they shouldn't want to have to do on their own. And so once they get paid, then they're all done with it. it is, it's is—it's totally fascinating. So as you say, this doesn't mean that we no longer encourage kids to read over the summer. Of course, we want to encourage kids to read over the summer. So having a community of readers who come together at the library, you know, where once a week you get together and you share books that you've been reading and you talk to other people about books. Um, we give kids access to high interest books that they can read Now we're tapping into curiosity, belonging, competence, autonomy. We get together on a Friday and we have this community of people who get together to talk about books. That's totally fun. Now we're tapping into the intrinsic motivators and we're sending signals that reading is awesome. But as soon as we say, if you show up on Friday, then we'll give you cookies and juice. We could blow the whole thing. That doesn't mean we can't have cookies and juice on Friday when the kids get together. It's just that we don't use that as the motivator. And, that, and that's the really important part is that it's, it's as soon as we say, if you do this, then you get this. That's when the motivation changes and we often um, destroy what we're trying to create. Yeah.
0: It's interesting. I'm thinking of an experience where a teacher was doing this extrinsic motivation to get kids to do a thing. And as soon as she stopped doing the thing that she told them they would get, if they did it, they stopped doing what she wanted them to do. And she was she was frustrated and dumbfounded that that this would happen when, come on, they should be in here doing this and they have fun when they do it. And we had to have the conversation of, well, you told them that they need to do this so they can get this reward. And, and so I want to talk briefly about this TEDx talk that I gave, uh, long time ago, nearly a decade ago now. And we were having this problem with, with attendance at our school and we had 85% attendance and we couldn't figure out how to get kids to come. We did all these extrinsic motivators and what finally worked was, and I'll put a link to this with that Alfie Cone video in the show notes, because it's so good. You've got to watch it. Um, What we did is we just said that the kids could celebrate for five seconds as a class, if they had more than 95% attendance. And so every day we just announced each grade level, what their, what their attendance was and all they got to do was scream for five seconds. And then they had to stop. And we interrupted class for like a minute, 20 every day for all the grades. And, and that was it. And when we made it about celebrating and having community with your peers Then it changed and our attendance rate went up. And as long as the school kept doing that long after I was gone, um, the the kids attendance was still at 95 percent or higher over the course of a year because they found community in being together. They found that sense of belonging. And I just thought that that was so awesome to see that in real life that all the effort we put into all the other things and the tracking and all that kind of stuff and rewarding kids, none of it worked. It didn't change a single thing, but it did change when we made it about them feeling connected to others. Also, I'm looking back at the indicators. We gave it purpose and we said, coming to school means something because you're learning and learning is important. We gave them autonomy and we said, nobody's going to make you come. You have to choose that for yourself. Because the other thing we were facing was that, we had even tried like doing home visits and going to the homes and getting the kids because they could all walk. So we could just walk back to school with them. We learned that that wasn't working either. And so we said, it's your choice to come to school and we're not going to increase how often we call or tell anybody what's going on. But the the kids just did it when they had autonomy, purpose, and belonging. And, and they changed just like that within just a couple days. And then it just stayed consistent for the whole time.
1: Yeah, so this is this is the deal. We got to make school so awesome that kids want to come. Like, if if kids are doing awesome work, and they're feeling safe, and they're in community, and they have choice, and they're being respected, and they're having fun, and they're they're getting to investigate and learn about things they want to learn about. Like, you're not going to be able to keep them away. And so, the damage that's done through these extrinsic systems is that basically we're saying that. Kids don't want to learn and don't want to be good. And so we have to try and motivate them. And that's, that's one of the biggest shifts that I encourage teachers and schools to make. We need to stop trying to motivate kids. Instead, we need to tap into their intrinsic motivations. Like, I don't want kids to simply be motivated by me the one year they've got me in class, because that doesn't do them much good when they move on to the next year. I want kids to tap into their intrinsic motivations and un- uncover their intrinsic motivations so they can be self-motivated. And if school is about compliance, if school is about obedience, if we think it's our job to get kids to do stuff or make kids do stuff, then we're creating conditions where kids are not going to want to be there. But so here's here's a story. And this connects with the other books that I've written. This, is, this comes right out of that book that you were talking about earlier, The Learning to Choose, Choosing to Learn. And my latest book, the one that just came out last year, is What We Say and How We Say It Matter. And that's really all all about how to use the language of intrinsic motivation. So this is a story that I can't even remember where I tell it right now. but, But one year I was teaching fifth grade and we were doing independent research projects on conflict in U.S. history. So it's part of our social studies curriculum. And each kid is investigating a different topic that they chose that has a connection to conflict in U.S. history. So we got one kid studying rocket ships during the Cold War and the space race. Somebody else studying Jackie Robinson, because he's a huge baseball fan. So he's talking about Jackie breaking the color barrier. A girl studying Rosa Parks. One kid, Timmy, was studying Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain and the 20th Maine Regiment from the Battle of Little Round Top from the Battle of Gettysburg from the American Civil War. It was really specific. And he was just an interesting kid. So anyway, it's a Friday, and Timmy comes up to me a little panicked and says, Mr. Anderson, are you coming to school tomorrow? I said, tomorrow, that's Saturday. Do you mean Monday? Am I gonna be here Monday? He said, no, are you gonna be here tomorrow? I know sometimes you come to school on the weekends to get work done. I said, well, I hadn't planned on it, why do you ask? He said, because I really need to work on this model of Little Roundtop. It's taking me so much longer than I thought and we're starting presentations next week and I really need more work time. (laughs) And so I said, "Um, yeah, okay, I guess I could come in for a while tomorrow morning. How about I'll be here from eight to 12 and you can come in and work on your social studies project. He said, oh, thank you, Mr. Anderson, thank you. Some other kid hears this and says, whoa, wait, Timmy's coming to school tomorrow. I got work, I got to do. Can I come in and work on my project? So I made the announcement to the class. And Yeah. And said to the class, okay, everybody, here's the deal. Some of you are feeling some stress because you'd like to get more work done in your projects. Um, if you want to come in tomorrow, I'll be here from eight to 12. It's not indoor recess time. It's not hang out with friends time. It's work on your social studies projects time. And I sent a note home to families, 11 out of 22 kids showed up on a Saturday morning, knocking on the back door to my classroom to work on their social studies research projects. Voluntarily on a Saturday, this was a non-graded project. This is what happens when we tap into intrinsic motivation. They had autonomy because they had choice about what they were learning within a topic. I mean, this is a social, so, social studies project on conflict in U.S. history. Um, there was purpose because we were about to give research presentations where they're going to teach others about what they would learned. They had all learned so much. So they were feeling this incredible sense of competence and mastery over the learning that they'd done. They were sense of belonging because we were all in this together and we were doing the research presentations together and they'd been sharing with each other about what they'd been learning. They were digging into things they were curious about and many of the projects were really fun to create. Like Timmy was creating this huge model of Little Round Top with paper mache and using GI Joe figures to show how the 20th Maine Regiment lined up like a fishhook on the end of the mountain. Oh my gosh. All of these intrinsic motivators are in place and in action and kids are begging to come to school on a Saturday. And I can guarantee you that if that was a graded assignment and that their goal was to get a grade, we would not have seen that kind of energy.
0: Yeah, exactly. And, and that is part of the problem with using grades as motivation, which we so often do. So thinking about that idea of making it exciting, um, how do we then tap into their intrinsic motivation? How do we make that work and still meet our standards? Because that's what we're stressed
1: about. Right on. So that social studies project I was just just describing came right out of our social studies curriculum where I was teaching. And so it's not that we weren't assessing. We absolutely were assessing. There was ongoing assessing throughout the whole thing. Everybody had to explore the essential question, is it ever okay to fight? That was the essential question that was guiding all of our research as a class. And then... We all had these different social studies standards that everybody was having to work at. And we had a checklist of these things so that as kids were doing their research, they were making sure to check to make sure they were covering all the bases as far as the content went. They had each then also asked their individual questions. Those, they had their individual goals right on their, their goal sheet with the competencies from the social studies curriculum. So this is what we do is we take the content we've got to teach and we think, okay, how can we give kids some choice, some power and control over this? How can we create a sense of purpose around this, and purpose that makes sense for kids, not the grown-up purpose like you're going to need this someday? Yeah, that's not good purpose for most kids. Here's a really simple example. We were working on writing numbers in expanded notation in in class. I put all of the numbers one through one hundred up on um, up on a dry erase board and had the digits of one through 100 on individual little pieces of paper. I just wrote them down real quick. Our class challenge as a group was to create the expanded notation for every number one through 100 during that math period. So a kid would take the number, they'd figure it out, they'd check it with somebody else, they'd check it with me, they'd go and they'd add it to the board, and they'd come back and get another number. So the task of trying as a class to create this bulletin board gave a sense of immediate purpose for the work. So we took something that was fairly dry and gave it purpose. We did something in community. So there was belonging. Kids were practicing something and getting better at it. So they felt a sense of competence. It was a little bit fun because, you know, it was like this challenge. Can we do it in 45 minutes? So that's the key is we take what we need to teach. We take our learning standards and we think, how do we connect it with a kid's sense of fun and curiosity and belonging and competence and purpose and autonomy?
0: Yeah. And that, that is what I've really seen. That so gets to the point where kids are willing to come in on a Saturday, and and it, it can be, it can take some time for us to figure out how to how to put those things into place. But as you said, how can we make this, you know, how can we make this fun? That's a good place to start with everything we do because people enjoy having fun. Mm-hmm. But then also, how can we focus on the thing that actually matters and not on the things that don't matter? With the central question in your social studies class was. Uh, Is it ever worth it to fight? There are all these different ways that you can approach this and all these different things that you could do. And really, it doesn't matter what kids we're studying or paying attention to or interested in to you as the teacher, because you're trying to get the answer to the question of, is it ever okay to fight? And that's where it takes a little bit of effort to rethink about what we're trying to do, because many times, especially in social studies, it's learn about you know, whatever battle and whatever war and nobody really cares about that. Even, even adults, unless you are really curious in that war and then there will never be enough for you to satiate right. that curi- curiosity because you always want more. And that's just, you know, that's how it goes. A Hardcore History by Dan Carlin is, is a great podcast and he does these four and five hour episodes about this super in-depth nerdy stuff about a specific battle or a specific time period. And it is so dense and it is so deep. But if you're into that, then that time just flies by. Um, But if you're not into that, then why would you ever listen to it? You wouldn't, you know, unless you were being forced to.
1: Yes, you're so right on. So here's the shift I would encourage people to think about when thinking about content. I think we should view content, especially as we think about social studies and science content in particular, it's a means to an end. It shouldn't be the end in and of itself. So in the end, with that unit on conflict in US history, every kid dug into a really fascinating topic and they learned stuff from each other also, but they weren't all learning the same content because in the end, who cares when the Stamp Act was? I mean, if I need to know when the Stamp Act was, I can just say to my phone, hey, Siri, when was the Stamp Act? And my phone will tell me. So instead of thinking of content as the goal, we should think of content as our playground. How can we use this cool content to help kids learn the skills they're going to need and the mindsets they're going to need and to get them fired up and curious and excited about learning? doesn't mean we no longer care about content. We think of it in a different capacity. It's about the means to the end. It's about the playground for doing the stuff that matters. Because those fifth graders, they were all about to hit puberty. Guess what? Their brains were going to turn to soup. They're going to totally reorganize. And they're going to come out as different people on the other side. And they're not going to remember the content that they learned in fifth grade when they're you know, 16. Regardless of whether they studied Joshua Lawrence-Chamberlain Little Round Top or the Space Race, how much of that content is still going to be there five years later? And do we care? I care more that kids are finding passion and curiosity and interest for learning because that's, what's going to make a difference for them in the long run. Not whether or not they know exactly when the stamp act was.
0: There's, there's so much more that we can talk about here before we close. What, what is the name of the book so that people can find it? And I'll put a link to it in the show notes,
1: which book, the one I'm working on now, Yeah, I don't have a good title for this yet. I really struggle with titles. (laughs) Okay. And so there's, you know, the part of me that wants to go the negative route and say something like the crisis of motivation in schools or a motivation crisis. And I may go with something like that with a subtitle that offers a hint at relief. Um, (laughs) it's probably not going to be out until the end of the summer of 2021 is my guess. So it's still in draft form. Um, all right. So people can look look for it coming out in maybe July or August of 2021, but I'm not sure about that. And I don't yet have, I, I can't tell you what the title is. I will say that if people wanted to check out the learning to choose, choosing to learn, so much of that book is about how to use choice as a vehicle for tapping into autonomy and purpose and competence and fun and all those other things. Because when we give kids, so you were saying it can be really hard to connect these things to content, like, mm-hmm. where do you start? One of the ways we can do it is to say to the students, hey, what are some ideas you have for how we might work on long division? You know, let's find a way to make this really fun and interesting. You know, and they might say, what if we create board games? Mm-hmm. Or what if we create, you know, videos that show these things in action? I don't know. I mean, kids will come up with really cool ideas when we give them the chance to. So Allison yeah. Zamuda, my friend and colleague, talks a lot about the act of co-creation where we co-create content or we co-create learning activities with kids, that can be a wonderful place to start is to say to them, you know, let's make this fun. Let's make it awesome. What are some ideas you have? And then they can help us figure it out. But in the book, Learning to Choose, Choosing to Learn, people will find tons of practical strategies for how to use choice to hit many of these intrinsic motivators.
0: Excellent. Thank you so much. Uh, My final question, Mike, is what is one thing that a principal can do this week to be a transformative principal?
1: I would say um, to start to dig into some of the research on motivation. So something else I'll do, Jethro, I'll send you a link. I'm creating a live binder of resources right now to accompany the book. There are articles and videos and TED talks and all kinds of cool resources all about motivation. So you can put that in the show notes also. So I'd say a principal can start digging into and understanding this really important world of psychology about motivation, because if principals are still in the sort of stuck in that place of it's our job to motivate, and we're going to use gimmicks and tricks and tools to get there, then then I don't know if teachers are really going to be able to move, move beyond that. If a principal wants to be really transformative before they start to try and do anything with teachers or kids... I'd say spend some real time digging into and understanding some of the research behind this, because that's going to make your action that much more powerful when you're really, really ready to, to move and shake later on.
0: Yeah, that's great advice. Thank you again, Mike, for being part of transformative principle. Once again, everybody can get the links that we talked about the Alfie cone on Oprah, which I'm going to go watch right now. And the TEDx talk that I gave, uh, And the link to LiveBinder that he just mentioned at jethrojones.com slash podcast slash episode three, nine, zero. So thank you again, Mike. It's been great having you today. And if you want to follow Mike on Twitter, he is at Balanced Teacher.
1: Cool. Thank you so much, Jethro. I always love talking with you.
0: Thank you to our valued partner, John Cat Educational. If you are a leader looking to make transformative change by providing yourself and your leaders and teachers with professional development that is research-based and rigorous, yet easy to digest and full of practical strategies, check out the latest publications from John Cat. Visit us.johncatbookshop.com to find information on bulk orders or learn much more in our show notes. You can also use the code transformative to save a bundle. At us.johncatbookshop.com, school principals across the country are using TeachFX's virtual PD and job embedded feedback to boost student engagement during COVID. With TeachFX, teachers get eight times more feedback and generate 144% more student engagement on average in a school year with no additional work for school leaders or teachers. To learn more about TeachFX and get a special offer, visit teachfx.com/transformativeprincipal.